Good morning. I'm Larry Parsons, and this is my son, Jorgen. Nice to meet you. And just for you families that just brought your kids up, really celebrate that you can lift them and hold them because uh, later on it's not as easy. To <laughs> That's true, Dad. That's true. Okay. Um, let's read uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Thank you. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learn it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Our scripture is brief out by God and plausible for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, bless Bill and speak through him so that your word, again, Lord, may equip us to do every good work, Father, to reprove us, Lord, to teach us and to bring us in your way in learning righteousness, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, like John said, I'm Bill. I'm one of the elders here at the church today. We're going through Second uh, Timothy. Our theme for this morning is God's Word, Godly Prayer, and God's People. We'll kind of be jumping around back and forth as we go through our theme, and we'll just see where uh, God leads us. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we all come here today with uh, busy lives, lots on our hearts, uh, worries and cares. We just uh, lay that all at your feet. I uh, pray and ask that uh, we're First off, Lord, that we're excited to hear from you. We pray that you uh, would lead us, direct us, Lord, in your word. And I pray and ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable this morning, Lord, to you. One of my uh, first memories as, as a child, I was probably four years old, and my dad took me into the cockpit of a DC-6. Oh, no, there it is. It's an old airliner. I'm dating myself. That looks old, doesn't it? <laughs> my dad knew one of the pilots, and I got to go up in the cockpit. And my life was different after that. I knew what I wanted, wanted to do. Any kids here that thought it would be fun to be a pilot, fly an airplane? Yeah, I see a bunch. <laughs> <clears throat> so most of my adolescent young life and then teenage life, I spent focusing on learning to be a pilot. Fast forward 21 years, and I find myself at UPT, undergraduate pilot training for the Air Force. Of course, the military has acronyms, call signs, nicknames for everything. There were 63 of us in my pilot training class, and Funny, we were all had the same hopes and dreams. I found that the majority of the 
people in my class were similar to me. They, they had from a young age wanted to be pilots. In fact, one of my older brothers came, said, he came to visit and said, you guys are all clones. You think alike, you act alike, you even look alike. We spent hours of time together uh, in class, on the flight line, and developed lifelong friendships as we went through. When you get to the flight line, you get assigned uh, an IP, an instructor pilot. And my instructor pilot, we nicknamed the Screamer. Well, as you can guess, that is not a good thing. Uh, didn't matter what we were doing, when we were in the jet, he was pretty much yelling. If he got really frustrated at me, he would bang on the dash or shake my oxygen hose. Nothing I could do seemed to uh, satisfy him. It didn't take long after being in class that some of my classmates started washing out, which was very difficult because we had developed these friendships of all the same hopes and dreams and to see their hopes and dreams get washed away was very hard. The program was designed to be difficult to make sure you could perform under stress and then at the same time the Air Force did need pilots so several of the pilots were being washed out. In fact, a year later at graduation less than half of my class would get their wings. It was a very uh, stressful time. There was lots of anxiety in my life, lots of sleepless nights, and I was doubting myself a good majority of the time whether I really belonged there. And it didn't help every time I'd go flying with the screamer, he would remind me that I was one mess up away from being set home, from being washed out of the program. You would go the day before and look at your schedule to see who you're flying with. And one day I noticed that I was flying with a, a different IP and his name was Major Oliver. So I studied all night, didn't get much sleep and showed up the next day at his office and I noticed he had a scripture on his desk. And I told him how much I liked his scripture and he said to me, well, do you have a favorite scripture? And at the time it was Isaiah 43. Uh, blessed are those who wait upon the Lord, so they, for they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And boy, I, I rested on that scripture for that year's time. Major Oliver was the exact opposite of a man than my first IP. He was a kindly man. He was a soft-spoken man. He was a godly man. When we would be flying together, he would just say to me, Lieutenant, we all had the same first name, it was Lieutenant, I'd say, Lieutenant, you can do better. And that was all he had to say, and I would do everything in my power to do a better job. Have you ever had someone in your life that spoke life into you? Have you ever had someone that helped show you who you are in Christ? because that is who Major Oliver was to me. And I'll never forget one day, he, after we had been flying, he pulled me aside and he said, you are supposed to be here. God has given you the ability to do this job. And I don't know, he maybe told everybody that, 
but it was life-changing to me. It meant all the difference in the world to have someone like him encourage me and day to day to do what I needed to do. Um, it wasn't just flying lessons he was teaching me. It was life lessons through adversity. And that's exactly who Paul is to Timothy. Paul was a man that was more mature. He'd been around the block a couple times. And so he was that guiding light to Timothy. It says in the scripture that Paul called Timothy his son in the face. So they had a very close relationship. We know at the time that Paul was in prison for a second time. The first time we know is around 58 to 61 AD. And that was, I called it the Club Med prison. Because he was free to kind of come and go. He was free to have visitors. Where this second time in prison was totally different. Around 67 AD, Paul was in a hole in the ground. And the only way food was brought to him was down through a rope or a ladder. It was dark. It was damp. It was cold. Very different circumstances than his first time. Timothy, at the time, we know was from Lystra. And if you remember, in, as we read in Acts, that Paul taught and preached in Lystra. They didn't like what he had to say, so they threw him out of town and stoned him, presuming him to be dead. So I started thinking, what, what must he have looked like? Because he got up, dusted himself off, and went right back into town and started preaching. Have you seen, I've seen these ads for The Walking Dead, a TV show. I'm sure it's a show Anthony would like. <laughs> Halloween's, Halloween's coming up. It just brought to mind that. So if you can only imagine, here is Paul, who's just been stoned. You know, he's at least having a bad hair day, right? Goes into town to preach. Now, we don't know this for a fact or not, but I'm sure Timothy was there. He had to be there. It says later on in 2 Timothy that he was acquainted with the scriptures from a very young age that leads to salvation in Christ. So he knew the word, he knew the Old Testament. And so here's this man that looks like the walking dead that is teaching Jesus with authority and with knowledge beyond anybody else's knowledge. It had to be earth-shattering to Timothy. Other things we know about Timothy was that he was young. It says that flee in 2 Timothy, flee youthful passions. First Timothy says is let no one despise your youth. So we know he was young. We think somewhere around 32, 33, maybe 35 years old. It says when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Paul wrote that to the Corinthian church. It says... Let no one despise him. It also says, Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for his infirmity's sake. He also says that he has a spirit of fear. It doesn't sound like a grab the bull by the horns pastor. I, I'd like to think of all the labels we would put on Timothy today. Here he's a fearful 
sickly, timid guy. I like to call him Timid Timothy. We have Doubting Thomas. And this is encouraging to me because it means there's hope for me, there's hope for us with all of our warts and scars and fears to be used by God. Patrick Fairbrains is an 18th century scholar wrote this. Timothy was disposed to fear rather than to lead. Greatness was being forced upon him, much like Moses and Jeremiah and many others before him and after him, but he was exceedingly reluctant to accept it. You know, that's man's view. Man's view is that Timothy was hopelessly unfit to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus. God, but you have to remember, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called, and Timothy was definitely called. We know that Paul left Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was a, the capital of um, Asia at the time. It's where the Roman governor lived. It was a wealthy seaport town, but it was also filled with uh, idols, with prostitution, pornography. It was not a godly town. And if you think of the new church, of course, it's all new believers. It's Greeks, it's Romans, it's Jews, and they're bringing all their past beliefs with them. And also with that, they're bringing all their baggage. So what could go wrong? Timothy definitely had his work cut out for him. As we look in uh, the scripture at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through 9. It should be on the screen here. It says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. We have to stop there and look at the women of importance of the Bible and the women these, uh, the roles these women's played in Timothy's life. And also brings to mind the roles that we're called to play with our kids, our grandkids, our nephews, our nieces. God wants to use us in their lives. Verse 6, it says, For this reason I remind you to fling in, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You can imagine Timothy is probably leans towards being, being fearful. But Paul is reminding him that God has anointed him. He doesn't want him to be fearful. He wants, him to, wants to trust in him. If you look at self-control, what that really means is not taking what you're entitled to in the flesh. You can imagine as Timothy, as he's a young pastor, that he's going to want to respond quickly. I know I would at times. People are coming at him, but Paul is reminding him, you need to respond how Jesus would respond. Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel of the Lord or to share the Lord with somebody? Several years ago, I had a friend, Eddie, he was a, he was a pilot, and Eddie fell off his mountain bike and broke his neck and became a quadriplegic. Eddie and I were really good friends, and I would 
take the time to go visit him. He lived in Albuquerque. And then one day I was running out in the woods in my happy place, and I'm just praying for Eddie, and the Lord just grabbed me. It wasn't a burning bush moment, but it was, it stopped me in my tracks. I had goosebumps all over my body. I call them Holy Ghost chills. And the Lord told me I was to tell Eddie about him. Shortly thereafter, I went to visit Eddie, and I danced around the subject. I didn't really do what the Lord had called me to do, and I regret it to this day. I made a promise to myself and especially to the Lord that I would not do that again to the best of my ability. Interesting enough, shortly thereafter, somebody else went and told Eddie about Jesus and he received the Lord. Point to me was God's will cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. His plan will go on. And, and so he wanted to use me but I didn't follow his word. Philippians 1 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We will all suffer if we're followers of Jesus. Shortly thereafter of um, having my time with Eddie, a friend came into town that was a friend I'd had for my whole life. And he asked me what's different. It's kind of like the Lord just opened that door, and I felt the Lord tell me, again, you need to tell him, tell him about me, and I did in a very soft and gentle way, and he pretty much was done with me after that. It was one of those times where I felt like you're going to pay a price at times for following the Lord. Verse 9 says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul's, Paul's talking to Timothy, but he's also talking to the church in Ephesus. He's saying God saved us and called us to a holy calling. That is all of us. When you give your life to the Lord, you are now called to a holy calling. It's said that if you're not moving forward in your walk, you're probably moving backwards. I feel like we're not called to the comfortable. If you're being really comfortable in your Christian walk, your prayer might should be, Lord, what do you have for me today? I know when John and Anthony asked me to teach one of the books of the Bible, you know, I gave the Christianese answer. I said, well, I'll pray about it. But, but in my mind, I was thinking there is no stinking way. You know, and then the, the Lord started working on my heart, and I remember the promise that I made to him. And then it doesn't help. I read in 1 Timothy, it says, and elders should be able to teach. It doesn't say he has to be good at it, just to be able. <laughs> it's interesting to note that in the first century church and in the day that most believers were added to the church one-on-one. On one. It was not at a big gathering of the church. It was by believers meeting with unbelievers, breaking bread, whatever it might be. John said a couple years ago, somebody had to say something to you sometime. You know, our lifestyles and actions can show much more than our words. Our words ring hollow and lack integrity 
if our lifestyle doesn't match our words. Not only do we need to walk the walk, we need to talk the talk. Keith Green used to say, don't tell people Jesus loves them until you're ready to love them first. In the second chapter, verses 1 through 5, it says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It can be really difficult to, be, to tell if we're being strong in the grace of our Lord. Tim Keller wrote a great quote on this. It says, While it may be difficult to judge how successful you are at being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, there are at least three things whose whose absence in your life makes it clear that you are not doing so. First, there will be very little prayer in your life. Second, there will be very little risk-taking to speak the gospel and plenty of caving in when you are given opportunities to speak or defend the gospel. Third, there will be very little peace and plenty of anxiety in your life, a sure sign that you're failing to trust the Lord. So how do we go about and living in God's grace. And that's by being people of prayer. The best way to express our reliance on God is through prayer. Prayer is our declaration of dependence. It's how we believe that God will give us the strength to do his will and work, to conquer all of our anxieties and fears. God wants us to give him all of our worries, all of our cares, you know, Philippians 4, 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Who doesn't want peace that passes understanding? I want that in my life every day. So you say, but I'm praying, and I'm not hearing from the Lord. Or he says, no. Or maybe he says, not yet. Well, there's still peace if you will let him give you that peace. If you remember in Corinthians, Paul writes that a thorn in the flesh was given to him, an illness that he prayed three times that the Lord would heal him, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord was trying to keep Paul humble. So if you notice, Paul didn't fret. He accepted it and move on. So... When God speaks to us and he says, no, or not yet, the God of heaven and earth is telling you that he has your, his hand on your life. He has you right where he wants you. And that is peace that passes understanding if you will let it be. If you look, Paul prayed for Timothy night and day, it says in verse 1. God wants our prayers all the time. I'm as guilty as the next person when life's going really well that my prayer, prayer life is lacking. But when sickness, if one of my grandkids gets sick, I'm on my knees and, and praying. God wants us to give everything to him. I, our son has a little two-year-old little boy. And when Cole is getting rambunctious, getting a little misbehaving, Luke grabs him and says, let's go for a walk and talk. And if you can picture this, Luke's this great big tall kid with this little two-year-old, and he's holding his hand, 
and they're going for a walk and talk. And that's what God wants in our prayer life. He wants us to bring everything to him every day, all of our cares, not the t hard things all the time, but all the good things, and our prayers for everybody that's, else, that's in our lives. We need to be living on dependence of, on God, not ourselves. And this is totally contrary to what the world is teaching us. Verse 2, it says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what Paul's doing is they're setting a foundation for the church because the church is not about Paul or Timothy or John or Anthony. It's about the Lord. It's the Lord's church. So he's saying when you're gone, Timothy, you need to laid up a foundation of pastors and teachers that will continue on. And we've tried to do that same thing here at Union, to lay a foundation for the church. Continues on and says, sharing the suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim to please the one who enlisted him. You know, a soldier doesn't enlist in the military without knowing it's going to be difficult. You know there's going to be hard times. You know there's going to be suffering. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Timothy, you need to expect it. You shouldn't be surprised when things are hard. You need to press on. You know we're all called to be soldiers for the Lord. When you're entangled with civilian pursuits means to be caught up in the cares of this world. You know, I, I fully believe that God wants us to enjoy his creation. But our primary goal is not pilots. It's not electricians or workmen. It is to follow what the Lord's called in our ministry. In verse 14, Paul writes, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. This is so true in the church and out of the church today. We as the church need to be of one accord. Our love needs to show who we are. You see too many infighting among churches. Who here hasn't been hurt at church? I'm sure almost everyone can raise their hand. So we need to be believers that show love first, that think of other first, and less, and less of ourselves. You know, it's said today that we as a country and as a world are more divided than as we were during the Civil War. So if the church is not the answer, then who is? Paul says that it spreads like gangrene. That's a cancer from inside that will eat itself up. He's telling, uh, Paul's telling Timi Timothy to major in the truth that will build people up and, ha and to live godly lives. You know, it says rightly handling the word of God means to cut straight. I think of a Roman road. If you ever seen a Roman road, they are like works of art. They're perfectly straight. He's telling Timothy, you have to preach the word of God, not your wants, 
not your desires, but you have to stick to the word of God. One compromise can lead down a trail of disaster. So in aviation, there are rules that govern us. There's uh, the rules of aerodynamics, the rules of physics, and we know as pilots that straying off one course can lead to disaster. That one little decision to make a false move may not cause the disaster, but it's a domino effect. And the word of God is the same way. He's telling, Paul is telling Timothy, you have to stay right down the center of the road and teach the word of God. Timothy Keller puts it this way. You can tell I did his commentary. I have lots of Timothy Keller quotes. One way we guard the gospel is to study it and know it so well so that when somebody distorts it, we are able to discern and prevent it from being passed on. We guard the gospel by teaching it in truth and faithfully. Ultimately, our goal should be to win people to the truth, right? If we win the argument but lose the person, we have failed as a church. We, you know, I think of political season is here. We need to look to love those people who agree with us, but more so those who don't, just like Jesus did for us. It's interesting because as, you, as Paul writes this, I think he's in a hole in the ground in prison. He knows his life's coming to an end very shortly, and his heart is for these people in Ephesus. He wants them to hear the knowledge and come to the knowledge of the Lord. And it's because he knows in Ephesians 6 it says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness, and that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Breathed out means God's breath. That God's word is actually God's breath. The authenticity of the Bible is under attack from in the church and outside the church. I feel like this is the cornerstone scripture of the legitimacy of God's word. Second Peter 11.20 says, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke it from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if Adam and Eve is not true, if it's an allegory or a myth, then the whole rest of the Bible falls apart. There were 66 books of the Bible. It was written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors mostly uneducated men, by fishermen, by shepherds. We know there was one smart guy, there was one doctor in there. <laughs> Thirteen countries, three continents, and it all reads as one author. Imagine taking two people in this room and asking them to write on one subject and how different the outcomes would sound. Secular his uh, historical standards say that 
Bible is the most accurate book that's ever written. There are more than 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that were written in the first century. No book in the, in the world has been able to predict with 100% accuracy what's coming into our world. Over 300 prophecies that were written in the Old Testament describing the coming of Christ. If you look at the word that's used to describe scripture in the Greek of the Old Testament, it's graphe. It's actually the same word that's used to describe Paul's writing. Paul knew he was writing the New Testament. It's also the same word that was used when John wrote his books of the, of the New Testament, graphe. If you think about it, when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he defeated Satan by quoting scripture. You would think if it's good enough for the Lord, it should be good enough for us. The Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The importance of God's word in our lives and our church, we've tried to replicate here at Union. And that's why we read scripture before. Everything that we do is very intentional towards God's word. I'm so thankful that we're studying, and I love going through the whole Testament, the whole Bible, because it's so easy to take one scripture out of context and distort it to how we want it to be. So it's really important that we study through the whole Bible. One compromise can send us down a path that takes us towards disaster. It's that same domino effect. What happens if your passions or your wants take precedence over the word of, of the Lord? Can we really fully understand the Bible? There, I'll be honest, there are parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament that I read, and I'm like, what the heck, Lord? Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, the Bible stands on its own merits. The question is, do we believe him and do we trust him? The Holy Spirit confirms with our hearts that the Bible is the word of God. So what does God say about us knowing scripture? If we read Deuteronomy 6, listen to what the Lord says about his words. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your, on your gates. God's word is everything. So we're going to finish up today in the fourth chapter of Second uh, Timothy Paul writes, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the the parchments. We know that Paul is soon to be beheaded by Nero around 68 AD. I did a little research and it would take four months, approximately four to five months, for a letter to travel from Rome to Ephesus. So there's a very strong possibility that by the time Timothy received the letter that Paul had already gone home to be with the Lord. Paul is encouraging Timothy to fulfill his ministry, but he's also encouraging us to finish strong. If you read that last chapter four, Paul is admitting his loneliness, that he needs others. So here is the author, the vast majority of the New Testament. Remember, this is the man that was whipped stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, saying that he's lonely and that he needs fellowship. So arguably, probably the most mature Christian in history. So if Paul can say he needs others, we should be able to say the same thing. God's word is our nourishment and anchor. Prayer is our connection to life with him. God's people is our family as we look to share Jesus with the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We ask that you would send us out today to be on the lookout for what you might have, that you would lead us, that you would guide us. And Lord, we will give you all the glory, the honor, and praise. So Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.